Welcome, welcome to the Redheaded Preacher podcast of April 23rd, 2023. My name is Richard Lanford. I am the Redheaded Preacher of St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Skokie, Illinois, and I'm glad you joined us. This, um, this message that's coming up is based largely on current events and the Gospel according to Luke. I do bring in some uh, some passages from First Peter at the end of the sermon, but uh, primarily the from accompaniment to mission is grounded in Luke 24. Um, so I will stop talking and let you listen and find out uh, where this is going. I it's a different approach for me, but I just could not get away from the recent current events about gun violence and the sadness and frustration and disappointment that we've been dealing with for a long, long time. So, and those are just a couple of emotions. Uh, many, many more go along with this reality that we're living with in the United States. And as someone who lives in Chicago, it's, it's a little closer to home. I'm going to invite you to join me in a brief moment of prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you move within us as we hear the words of Scripture declared, as we think about them, and as we hear the sermon. May you help us to hear what you want us to hear and guide our feet in the paths of peace. In Jesus' name we pray for your blessing on this time. Amen. Amen. And now on to the scriptures. Our first reading is the Epistle Lesson. Like last week, it is from 1 Peter. This day, it is chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. This passage is part of Peter's appeal for holiness rooted in the death and resurrection of Christ. If you invoke as Father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without defect or blemish, he was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end for the ages for your sake. Through him, you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set on God. Now you have, been, have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, Love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable, perishable, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. This ends the reading from the epistle. The gospel this morning is Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, and includes the exhortation to the Lord's Supper that we usually hear in Communion Sunday. Again, like the last two weeks, this is a story from the first day of Christ's resurrection. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, 
about seven miles from Jerusalem and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God, and all the people, and now, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. He asked them, Besides all of this, is now, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had, had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in, went in to stay with them. <clears throat> when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Here ends the reading from the Gospel and the scriptures for today's service. Thanks be to God for this, the living word of God, for the people living for God. The pulpit is not meant to be a confessional, and this is not exactly a confession, but an admission. Not only that this sermon was difficult to write, because that's my problem, not yours, but that uh, having written this, uh, coming up with a title finally, which is From Accompaniment to Mission, even this morning I remembered a resource that could make this better. And so at some point, I'm going to depart from what I've written to read some things that I trust will make this better on a difficult subject. When Jesus approaches those two disciples in Luke 24, it was pointed out to me that they were running away. They almost as much as admitted it. As United Church of Christ pastor and writer Cheryl Lindsay put it, I'm not sure that we can fully appreciate the spiritual, mental, and emotional overload the disciples experienced in those few days. We take the journey through Holy Week, but coming from the other side of these events, 
with the benefit of two millennia's worth of appreciation and humility and awe and grief and joy, among other emotional responses. I'm not sure how many of us are afraid. As eyewitnesses, they lived through the trauma as much as the miracle, and their fear was an understandable response. She continues, Perhaps that fear explains why these two made the curious decision to leave town after secluding themselves with the other disciples just at the point of victory. It's like watching a television series for seven seasons, but refusing to watch the final episode. It's reading an epic novel or a biography up to and excluding the last chapter. It makes no sense, she said. They just heard that Jesus, there were rumors of Jesus being alive, and this is when they decide to leave Jerusalem for Emmaus. It could not wait a day. A risen Jesus would fulfill their heart's desire, but that hope seems impossible to them. They aren't just taking a walk, they're running away. They find they cannot escape, however, as even their conversation is drawn to the impossible. End quote. Yes, they are on a somber, beyond troubling, and depressing journey. Jesus joined them and asked, What are you talking about while you walk along? What are you discussing with each other as you walk along? In response, Luke put it simply, powerfully, they stood still, looking sad. They stood still, looking sad. Of course! But Jesus, unbeknownst to them, it was Jesus, was now alongside them. They began to talk with him about it, and he listened until their sad story reached its amazing climax with the tale of the women's report of angels declaring resurrection. What Jesus did up to that point and after when he began to open the scriptures up to them was accompaniment. In their sorrow and dashed hopes and confusion and fear, they did not walk alone and someone came to listen to them. Now when it comes to news of somebody shooting a black man who pushed the doorbell of the wrong house, a cheerleader who mistook the wrong car and got into the wrong one, the woman who realized that, oops, they're in the wrong driveway, and of men like Ahmaud Arbery, who was killed by running in the wrong neighborhood, supposedly, supposedly in the wrong neighborhood, the blacks in the supermarket in Buffalo, a kid whose ball found a yard owned by a guy packing heat, Four partygoers shot down at a Sweet 16 celebration the myriad Chicago babies slain each year by the spray from drive-bys using military-type guns the shooters never were trained to use, and on and on. The schools that are violated, the churches that have sanctuaries lined with blood, there are bodies that will never be able to have an open casket we know that we too, as a nation, as well as those specific neighborhoods 
and places are on a very grievous, fearful, and angry journey. The Chicago Tribune reported on Friday that per the Associated Press, over 111 days this year, there have been 17 mass killings and taking 88 lives. 111 days, 88 lives. And our faith, too, is tested as attempt after appeal seemingly goes unheeded, but with more deaths and injuries and broken hearts. Now, we are not those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But walking in this frustration, we might wish we could escape to a place where hope has a chance. We are not those two disciples in Luke 24, but we are like them in a sorrowful sojourn, steeped in unrighteous violence, oppression, and brutal death. We are also like them in their being accompanied. Jesus is not staying away from us. He is walking on this trail with us. He listens and asks questions, even if, like then, he already knows the answers. Jesus knows what's going on. There is respect for our pain. There is empathy as only he could have, and Mother Mary could have, and Mary Magdalene could have, and some of the disciples could have. He accompanies us on our travels with our spirits lit up by bitterness and anger before we remember in whose midst we walk. Now, we have martyrs in the church's history, and we as Christians have unhappily made martyrs of the undeserving. So the church does bring something of our own to the country's long history of violence unto others. Sometimes it's been unto us. It is part of our journey to which we now know Jesus is a part of. He's listening, but he doesn't stop with the listening. He's teaching us. He is our hope at the basis of everything else we try to do to ameliorate this horrible season of violence and killing. Well, what does this mean? For me, it means that as disciples of Jesus, it is upon us to continue getting nourished and strengthened by our life of Christ. If we let our spiritual foundation and then our spiritual health wane or weaken, we will not be very helpful in moving from accompaniment to mission. For I believe that what is going on in our country, at least in part, is a spiritual sickness. Will easy access to guns, the profit and culture driven power of the lobbies, insufficient mental health and legal safeguards, as well as the socioeconomic causes of addiction and gang warfare over drug turf account for all of this bloodshed? Is it all going to be repaired by safer policies, well-funded programs, and courageous leadership? Are we going to be healed by these important things alone? I think something bigger is going on at some level, and it's somehow spiritual. 
I've just heard about too many acts of violence and too many shootings for too long a time, decades, to think that what's materialistic and political are all that's wrong with America when it comes to gun violence and its proliferation for so many, including children and youth, to believe that lethal violence is the first best way to deal with your fear or resolve a conflict, that to me is a spiritual malady. It doesn't strike me as natural that a number of gun owners, legal and lawful as almost all of them are, to feel they need to possess so many. It just doesn't strike me as natural. A CNN report a year ago wrote that there are about 393 million privately owned firearms in the U.S., according to an estimate by the Switzerland-based Small Arms Survey. In other words, 120 guns for every 100 Americans. That's the highest rate of any country in the world and more than double the rate of the country that's next on the list. A majority of those guns, however, CNN finished, are owned by a minority of people. Studies show. Guns for some people have become idols, I think. Idolatry is always a spiritual issue. And that's not the only part of what, we've, what we face. With fear and violent tendencies, sometimes racism is part of that for decades. Now how much of this is upbringing or aging while drinking in conspiracy and fear-mongering media or lack of parental oversight or the loss of valuing human life including one's own as well as the easier access to guns how much of it instead or in part of it is a scary economy where the middle class is shrinking the use of ai in jobs is coming up fast and people are economically terrified and so one can wrap need to feel a need to lash out and take action in a very unhealthy way. I'm not saying our response as Christians is to only pray, but to the extent you and I believe that our nation is spiritually ill in this regard, prayer is definitely a force for which we do not apologize nor neglect to use. But it is not the only response of the faithful. And however, we do respond out of our love for our neighbor, our God, whose children are both killing and dying and living with severe wounds, and our enemies. Our own spiritual grounding, as I've tried to say for the last couple of minutes, needs to be solid. Thank God Jesus is with us. He's accompanying us and those who have been victims. He listens, he asks, and then, opens up the scriptures. May our own hearts experience a burning like those two did so very long ago. What else I suggest you, I, and the church will benefit from is not only our Lord accompanying us, but also us listening to Christ. That's part of confirming our own spiritual grounding. It's not happening maybe so much anymore, at least not so much outside the society of disciples, but I'd be uncareful in saying that. In getting our foundation firmer 
our living hope. Last Sunday's sermon, we're born into a living hope. And getting our foundation firmer, that living hope needs tending to. So in tending to our hope, let's remember and claim and live and teach this from 1 Peter. Through him, through Christ, you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set on God. In our attempts to make this a less violent world, do not, as Jeremiah teaches us, put our trust in princes or in politicians, nor in the accumulation of firearms, but in the one who knows human suffering and pain and even death and rose in power over all of it. Let's stand firm in whom we believe, the one who gave everything for us and who wants justice and love to come back strong. Then we're better equipped as individual believers and as groups of believers to bear witness to the Prince of Peace in a variety of ways. Another essential strengthener from 1 Peter. Love one another deeply from the heart. Deeply can also mean constantly. Love one another constantly from the heart. If we would authentically speak and try to show forth love, we need to work on our own loving amongst the community of faith. For love is not primarily emotions in the New Testament, but deeds. Mission, from accompaniment to mission. Mission is our deeds of love. And at this point, I realized that a helpful resource would be better uh, than what I had. This is from the January issue this year of Sojourners. Uh, the cover is why the gun lobby loves Christians and, uh, and what Christians are doing about it. And this is part of this article. And uh, I begin. The U.S. gun violence crisis is too multifaceted for simple solutions. But Christians must challenge themselves to remain committed to repeated intentional action starting now. Taking action can begin by reflecting on Scripture, ding, ding, on Scripture and what it means to faithfully follow Jesus while considering your relationship to firearms. If you do not own a gun, examine your heart to expose judgments, conscious or not, that you may have formed about the other side of the gun issue. For those who are part of the 40% of Americans who live in a household with a firearm, Michael W. Austin, author of God and Guns in America, urges, quote, praying and soul-searching with others to determine whether your heart is oriented toward guns as tools or as idols. Michael Austin wrote, we're supposed to be willing to give up everything, right, to follow Jesus. And if I'm a gun owner, that includes guns. If I say no, I will never do that. And I confess my ultimate allegiance to Christ, then, who's then those things are intention. This is something that the, he's lifting up for the church to, you know, first ask ourselves this. For Martin, a faithful orientation toward guns begins with one question. Do we need this firearm to be a Christian? 
I don't think any reasonable or common sense person would say yes, he told sojourners. I think it really comes down to, is this what Jesus is calling us to do? And if we are serious and believe in the reconciliation of all things, then the fewer lethal tools we have in our tool belt, the better we're going to be at that. End of quote from him. And this is where I will come to an end from the article. Most important, Christians are called to pursue the greatest commandments and to recognize when our own human nature gets in the way. Hate is a sin, and hate paired with a firearm is deadly, said Giselle Morch, whose mother, a mother whose son was killed five years ago. We are commanded to love our neighbors. For our living hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one, accompanying us and teaching us during our mournful sojourn, remember we are taught by him, as well as by Torah, the greatest commandments. Love God with all we've got. Love your neighbor as yourself. And there's also something in Leviticus that says, do not stand idly by while your neighbor is being attacked. So don't just, you know, there's a time to intercede. It doesn't have to be violently, but don't stand idly by while violence is being committed. Just say, oh, that's the way of the world. Hope and faith and love are not only for us, but they are for us to share and to model, along with prayers of healing, to exercise America out of this shroud of spiritual affliction and into a healthy living together in peace. Lastly, for us in the church, in doing what we can to spread the gospel of nonviolence as Jesus would want, through policy and more, our own examples, let us not forget worship. This is where we remember who and whose we are. The Emmaus disciples ended their journey not only having been taught but by receiving from the risen one the blessed and broken bread. Then they knew who he was. Then they got up and ran back to Jerusalem to tell the news that hope was alive, that Christ was alive, that they had experienced his presence in the breaking of the bread, and so that the works of Iscariot and Pilate and the high priest and the centurions and the elders and the agitated mob were on the losing side of history. Christ is alive still. Our victorious companion, our teacher, our hope and sacramental bread for the journey set before us. I so wish this lectionary scripture was put on the first Sunday of the month. We must ever return to the table and find afresh our connection, our connection to who he is as the resurrection and the life. And then so reconnected to the risen Lord and fed by him, we are enabled and empowered to keep our living hope as we go forward to turn back the hateful disease plaguing our land as people of light and life. Amen. Well, what you heard was something I've never done before, and that is um, after practicing the sermon and after uh, doing my intro, 
I realized a way to improve it that I hadn't thought of. Actually, I kind of did the night before, but I was at home and this resource was in the office. And so it's easy to forget about it. But I didn't totally. And um, at some point, I went ahead and did what I said in the sermon. That's what hasn't happened before to my recollection, where I remembered there's something probably even better, and I went and got it, <laughs> you know, on a Sunday morning itself. But, you know, that means I'm just keeping trying to improve it. And uh, I shortened the sermon to include that, you know, add something, so remove something. And still the sermon was as long as it was. So I hope you didn't mind that. Um, and um, I hope that you found some value in it. I know that everyone comes from a different area. Well, not everyone, but it's a sensitive area for a number of people. So I tried to show respect for that and yet take a position at least as this preacher, not that that is the Christian position in the specifics. So once again, thank you for listening. I hope you'll keep coming back. We are always preaching the gospel to the best of our ability at Oakton Street and Laramie Avenue, not always using words, but also using deeds. And that's the good news. May God bless you. And may God bless your week. Amen. Like what you've heard? Hit subscribe to follow and get updates on our newest additions to the Redheaded Preacher. We'd love it if you'd give us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us online under most social media platforms by typing St. Peter UCC Skokie in your browser. Donations are much needed and very welcomed. You can donate to us by going to paypal.me backslash St. Peter UCC Skokie. This information and more can also be found in the show notes wherever you listen to our podcast. Thank you so much 